0: Again, I want to remind you, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper at the end of my message this morning. And I trust that God will prepare your hearts to take communion with joy, full assurance and confidence of all that Christ has done for us on our behalf. Well, this year at Rock Valley Bible Church, we're preaching through the entire Bible And uh, I trust that uh, you all know this. We've distributed Bible reading schedules to all of you. We've strongly encouraged you to read through the Bible. How many of you, I'm just interested, how many of you have uh, read or caught up or at least stayed close or tried? How many of you have really tried to do this? Great. I appreciate that. You know, my prayer has been for every single one of you, I think, this week as I... So I thought about what's going to go on throughout your days. I said, you know what, God, please help them find the discipline to read the Scriptures right through with us. Because if you've read this week, you have read my text. My text is Genesis chapters 4 through 25. Next week, my text will be chapters 26. And actually, I'm going to finish the end of Genesis. So if you're saying, boy, you know, I I messed up this week and just couldn't find time. I say, you know, start today today. In Genesis 26, and just prepare, next week we're going to think about the life of Joseph. If you're having problems, difficulties, disciplining yourself to do so, I would encourage you to do so with your family. One of the things that has helped us as a family, I'm not sure we've ever been as regular in Bible reading as we have been this week. Normally, you know, things are busy, we're out the evenings, and, um, but our in-laws were in town this week, and uh, they didn't leave our house until we were done with our Bible reading. And so, we had it done, just kind of every week, just every day, just right on schedule. Normally, we're behind a little bit, have to read a lot, but just it's the accountability there. It's the encouragement. I encourage you to read it together as a family. You know, my desire is to see all the families of the church. Hang on, I got it here. Where'd it go? I had a brochure that talked about, is family, here it is, is family worship practiced in your home? This is what I long to see in every home at Rock Valley Bible Church. Just the, the people gathering together, the Bible ring being read, songs being sung, and, uh, and prayers being offered. You know, we did have the Krauses over. Uh, I forget when it was. Friday night, I think, we were doing some work on a, a CD that Yvonne's been working hard to prepare to help you all understand um, just a vision, a big-term perspective of the Bible. And uh, we had them over for dinner and then did some singing together and recording. And we're making a CD, which we'll make available to you. But one of the things I asked is, hey, have you guys been keeping up on your Bible reading? He said, well, yeah, but we haven't read today. He said, we haven't either. So before they left, we had a time of family worship together as families. And I would love to see that happen in our church. Just families come together because they love worshiping Christ together. So that's, again, my, my plug. But you've been reading through Genesis. You've encountered Four events. The creation, the fall, the flood, and the scattering of the nations. Four events. That's the first half of Genesis. Genesis 1-11. through The second half of Genesis has four people. It's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And in Genesis, from verse 12 through verse 25, we read the story of Abraham. Last week, we looked at the creation of the fall. This week, our text takes us through the... The flood and the scattering of the nations. And I'm not going to say much about that for the sake of time, because Abraham is so rich for us this morning, but I'm simply going to say this. Remember, the fall came about because of the wickedness of man. Genesis 6:5 says that when the Lord looked down upon the sons of man, he saw that every thought of man's heart was only evil continually. In fact, it's even more. Every intent of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually. And that which was true before the flood is true after the flood. Genesis 8.21 says exactly the same thing, that man's thoughts and intentions are evil from his youth. Every time you think about the flood, think about the devastation that God brought, His anger against sin. And then even the Tower of Babel, the scattering of the nations, that's really a, a manifestation expression of the disobedience of men. Even after the flood, they tried to make a great name for themselves. And be unified. But God had told them back in the garden to reproduce and be multiply and to populate the earth. And they didn't do that. So, God scattered them with different languages. And now we come to chapter 12. For the first 11 chapters of Genesis, God has been dealing with the whole world in general. But now in chapter 12, God looks and focuses His attention upon one individual. And His name is Abraham. At birth, He was given the name Abram in chapter 17, as we shall see, God changed his name to Abraham. In my message this morning, I'm simply going to refer to him as Abraham, rather than trying to figure out when he was Abram and when he was Abraham. In fact, even that's what the New Testament writers do. They always talk to him about, they always refer to him as being Abraham. This morning, by, by means of opening up his life, I want to focus upon three verses. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And let these verses really be the window through which we will see the life of Abraham. As we see the the truth presented here, we'll go into the life of Abraham and see where this is manifest and see where this is true and thus cover all the life of Abraham. Well, in these three verses, God makes several promises to Abraham. Our outline this morning consists of three words. Land, nations, and blessing. Blessing. Land, nation, and blessing. Let me read them for you. Genesis 12, 1-3 The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, the magnitude of these promises here is really unbelievable. The whole history of the world hinges right here on God's promise to bless Abraham In incredible ways. Before the words of Genesis 12 were spoken, God's dealings with the world were pretty generic. He didn't have a chosen people. He didn't have a chosen nation. But right here, He calls a nation that He will call His own. And God determined that it would be of the offspring of Abraham who will be blessed in a special way that's not true of the other families of the earth. And for the rest of the Bible, we're going to focus here really upon the attention of Abraham and his offspring in the redemptive plan of God. It's as if God kind of says, well, you know, there's lots of families in the earth, but, but this is the one that I'm focusing my attention upon. It's Abraham and his children. Well, let's look at the first promise that God gave to him. He says this, verse 1, is the land. The land that he promises. God tells Abram, Abraham to go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. In this first verse, Abraham wasn't told the details about the land. He didn't know quite where it was. He didn't know how big it was. He was simply told to go. And this is the point of Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, he obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. He just obeyed God, left Ur the Chaldees, and traveled up northwest, and then finally came down into the land of Canaan. And we got into the land of Canaan, God said, This is the land. Right? We see that in verse five, right? Abram coming with Lot, his nephew, and all the possessions, right? And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they came to the land of Canaan. And then God said, in verse 7. After Abraham arrived there for the first time, God made it clear that this land here is a land of promise. It's a land of Canaan. That modern modern day Israel is what we're talking about. That strip of property which lies to the east of the Mediterranean Sea. And God tells Abraham here in verse 7, To your descendants, I will give this land. In the early days of America, the settlers would place four stakes of wood in the ground as boundary markers for the land that they were claiming. Here in verse 7 of Genesis 12, it's as if God is staking out the the four stakes of the land for Abraham. He says, this is going to be your land. Now, this wasn't the only time that the the promise of land was made to Abraham. It's repeated again and again and again throughout the life of Abraham. Abraham even repeated in life of Isaac, even repeated in life of Jacob, even Moses repeated it, and Joshua finally conquered it. Let's look here at how often it was repeated to Abraham. Over, look over at chapter 13. This chapter tells the story of Abraham and his nephew named Lot, how they separated from each other. Lot went east into the valley of the Jordan. Abraham went west of the Jordan into the land of Canaan. And when he arrived there, the promise came in verses 14 through 17, right? The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. He was right in the middle of the land of Canaan, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and its breadth, for I will give it to you. This is God, again, promising this land to His descendants. Look at over chapter 15. He speaks of the same thing there. Verse 7, speaking of the land of Canaan, God told Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. I'm giving you this land, Abraham. Chapter 17, verse 8. We see the same thing. God says, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Repeatedly promised was this land to Abraham again and again and again. And really, from this day forward, the land that God promised to Abraham becomes a major focus throughout the Bible. Particularly, even even God tells Isaac that He's going to inherit this land. Look over at Genesis chapter 26, in verse 3. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands... Now establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. The oath came to Abraham and it comes to Isaac. Right? It even came to Jacob. Chapter 28. Jacob had a dream. In verse 13, the Lord told him in a dream, says, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Verse 15, Behold, I am with you and will... Keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Here's the land. You are going to get it, Jacob. And even to Joseph, right at the end of Genesis chapter 50, we see in verse 24, Joseph is about to die, and he said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land, they were in Egypt at this time, to the land which God promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you. You shall carry my bones up from here. Just anticipating the inheritance that the family of Abraham will receive in the land. It's the patriarchs. In fact, you can't understand the wanderings. Numbers. Exodus, you can't understand those passages unless you understand the Abrahamic covenant. You can't understand the book of Joshua without understanding that God had promised this land to Abraham and that God told Moses, this is the land which I swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. In Joshua chapter 11, verse 1, God told Joshua to go in and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And throughout the book of Joshua, it's all that God is giving them the land. When they were unfaithful and sinful, God allowed them to be defeated. But when they were faithful, God pressed on and marched before them and they took over the land. And near the end of the book of Joshua, we are told, So the Lord gave Israel all the land which He had sworn to give to their fathers and they possessed it and lived in it. Joshua 21, verse 43. It's the culmination The land was gotten. God stayed true to His promise and brought them into the land. But once they received the land, it's not like they said, okay, we got the land and let's move on. No, the land was precious to the Jews. It was important to them. They knew that when they came into the land, it was a sign of God's blessing which started with Abraham and has come all the way down through the generations. Eventually, a temple was built in the heart of the land in Jerusalem. And God has, you can argue scripturally, that God has, of all the places on the planet, a special heart for the place in Jerusalem. God said that He would put His name there, that's where His presence would dwell, is in Jerusalem, where the temple was. And so precious was this land to the Jewish people that they would sing, this is a song that they would sing, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her skill. And may my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth, if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. So longing to be in the land, longing to be there. That's from Psalm 137. And so precious was this land to them that they would pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They would pray, may they prosper who love you. It's not so much the bricks and the mortar that they loved in Jerusalem, but it's everything that Jerusalem represents. It represents the presence of God. It represents the promise of God fulfilled. It's all about the dwelling of the people of God. And its roots all trace back to Abraham and his descendants. But it comes back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. And this theme really weaves its way through the entire Bible. When the Jews were in the land, it's a demonstration of God's blessing upon them. But there's a time when the Jews are exiled from the land. It's a time of God's curse upon them for their disobedience. And the Jews have always longed to be in the land. And you know what? Their desire continues today. In this past generation, the Jews have been able to return freely to their land for the first time in centuries. And Jews from all across the world have flocked to Israel. And they have flocked to Israel even amidst Enemies all surrounding them who hate them. Who want to drive them into the Mediterranean Sea. It's, it still continues today. right? You read front page news almost every day is what's happening in the Middle East. It's really a sign of God's blessing upon the Jews. It's a sign of the other nations hating the Jews and wanting to get them out. But it all traces back to Abraham. This promise in Genesis chapter 12 verse 1. So, turn back there. Genesis chapter 12. And you'll see as you continue to read through the Bible, you'll always see this event referred to again and again and again. God's promise to Abraham for the land. Promise to Abraham for the land. But it wasn't only the land that God promised Abraham. In the first half of verse 2, we see that God promised also a nation. A nation. He says, I will make you a great nation. In other words, Abraham would be the father of, Of many, many people, all of whom could trace their lineage back to Abraham so as to be able to say, Abraham is our father. We're of our father Abraham, right? And the Pharisees love to make that promise. How many times do the Pharisees make that promise when encountering Jesus? We're of our father Abraham. We're of Abraham. He's our father. You know, my parents have done a pretty good job at populating the earth, they had five children. Not as good as some of you all, but they've been doing pretty well. And there, all of us, five children are all married. We have 20 grandchildren among them. And 20 children can all say of them, Stan Brandon is our father. He's our ancestor. But that pales in comparison to what God promised Abraham. Abraham was going to have a great nation. The father of an entire nation could all trace their lineage back to Abraham. And just as the promise of land was repeated again and again and again, so also this promise was repeated again and again and again. Right, consider Genesis chapter 13 verse 16. We read this verse earlier, but maybe it jumped over you. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Hey, children... Have you ever sat in your living room or perhaps in your bedroom on a sunny day like today is a sunny day and the sun comes in, beaming in? Have you ever done that? And then you look at the the air in your room, what do you see? Stuff floating. It's kind of just floating. You didn't even know it was there, did you? Until the sun hits it and reflects upon it in such a way. And God says, if you can number all those dust particles, then you can number the sons of Israel. And God's just trying to explain to Abraham how plenteous is going to be his offspring. A similar picture comes in chapter 15, verse 5. God took Abraham outside and He said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Children, have you ever been outside on a dark, clear night and looked up and seen the stars? You ever done that? In fact, tonight might be a really clear night. And when it's cold, you can see through the atmosphere better. And I just challenge you, children, to try to start counting the stars that you see and see if you can do it. And should you have a telescope or something, you would find that there are more stars than you can number. And God says, as a picture, so many will be your descendants. Again, it comes up in chapter 17. The first six verses. Let me just read them for you. Now, Abram was 99 years old. And the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you. I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant with you and you will be, here it is, a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, But your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. God, just even in this passage, again and again, I'm going to multiply you exceedingly. You're going to be the father of nations. You'll be the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I'll make nations of you. Just every time, every chance God has is just an abundance of telling Abraham how prosperous is his offspring going to be. In fact, so crucial was it that this promise for Abraham be ingrained in his heart that God changed his name so as to forever remind him of what's going to take place. In verse five, we see that change. No longer shall your name be called Abram. Av means father, like Jewish children today even say Abba, Ab. That means father. Ram means room. It's 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 high. It's lofty, ex- exalted. So Abram means exalted father. Abraham. Av means father. Raham means just a breadth, a, a multitude, many. And so, Abraham, Abraham, means father of a multitude. And the effect of changing Abraham's name was that it caused Abraham to remember God's promise often. Anytime someone would call him Abraham, he'd think, Father of nations, that's who I am. Father of nations, that's who I am. Now, I know several people who've changed their names. Do you know people who've changed their names? Wives often take their name, the husband's name, which is good. I know some men who've changed their names. Uh, and those who've changed their name. I've always asked them, so tell me, why'd you change your name? I have uh, one friend who changed his name because he believes um, in total equality in his marriage. He's an egalitarian. And so what he did is he took his last name and his wife's last name and combined them. So she changed her name and he changed his name to be something which kind of combined, just kind of nicely together. And... Uh, I'm sure that he has had the opportunity to spout forth his views that, um, you know, we're totally equal in every way and we want to come together. As he's been able to do that, as people have asked him questions. right? Missing entirely the, the fact of submission and headship into marriage. Which is why I think it's proper for wives to change their names. It reflects that. But he changed his name. He's had an opportunity to speak that forth. I have another friend who found out that his grandfather had committed some type of crime. And um, in order to escape from the law, he changed his name. I'm not sure if he got caught or whether he did succeed in running from the law. But my friend, when he found out about that and really started thinking about that, he said, you know what, why am I going under this man's name has been changed? I want to go back to the old family name. And so he made it clear that it was his desire to continue on with the family names to distance himself from any crime that his grandfather had committed. And I'm sure over the years he's had many opportunities to tell that story with lots of different people. And so likewise with Abraham. Certainly for a wealthy man like Abraham, he would have known many people. And many people would have seen his name change. You know, they called him Abraham. He said, no, my name now is Abraham. And they certainly would have asked him, so why would you change your name? And just imagine Abraham's story. He says, well, I was, a called, I was called exalted father, but now my name is father of a multitude. And the question would have come next. So, Mr. Father of Multitude, how many children do you have? And um, he would have responded suddenly, well, my wife's barren. She's 99 years old, but we believe that God will give us a child And from this child, we believe that there's going to be a multitude of nations. God made it very clear to us. How do you think that story would have gone over with those who heard it? As I put in the children's notes, I think that uh, those who spoke with him may well have thought that Abraham had lost his marbles. Abraham, something's wrong. That can't be true. Your wife is 99 years old. 99 year old women don't have children. But you know what? It's precisely at this point that we see Abraham's faith shining. In Genesis chapter 12, when God initially told Abraham he'd be made into a great nation, he was 75 years old. His wife at that time was 65 years old. Sometime later, we don't know how long, Abraham had a discussion about this with God. Right? It comes in chapter 15. You can turn over there. The Lord came to Abram, verse 1, in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I'm a shield to you. Your reward should be very great. And Abraham knew of the difficulty. He promised a child, but my wife was 65 when you promised that. But you know what? She's just getting older, and we don't know how much older she was at this point. But Abraham reminds God, and he says, O oh Lord God, verse 2, what will you give me since I'm childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus, right? That was one of his servants. right? He had hundreds of servants in his home, as we'll find out a little bit later. One of his servants, Eleazar of Damascus. In other words, Abraham was saying to this, God, I know you've promised to make of me a great nation, but I don't have any children. And I can't be a great nation unless I have any children. And just in case you forgot, I want to remind you. Did you forget? And maybe God was silent. Because Abraham has to say it again. He says it here in verse 3. And Abraham said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born of my house is my heir. Abraham knew clearly the dilemma that was upon him. But God said this in verse 4, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, Look towards the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then Abraham believed in the Lord and God the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. It's right at this moment that Abraham becomes for us all the father of faith. Abraham was in an impossible situation. God had promised a son to him. He was nearing a hundred years old. His wife was ten years younger and barren as can be. And certainly people lived longer in the days when Abraham lived, but even then, 99-year-old women didn't give birth to children, especially those who were barren from their youth. But you know, right here in verse 6, it says, Abraham believed the impossible. He believed the unbelievable and then God does the unbelievable. I'm not talking about providing with a son. That's easy. I'm talking about Crediting his faith as righteousness. That's what's unbelievable in this passage. That's what verse 6 says, right? He believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to Him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham's faith allowed God to look upon Abraham as a righteous man. Abraham wasn't a righteous man. We find in chapter 12, him lying, deceiving Pharaoh and opening up the possibility that his wife might be defiled. In chapter 16, even, we see Abraham going into Hagar, who wasn't his wife. In chapter 20, we see Abraham lying and deceiving Abimelech once again about his wife. But when God looked down upon Abraham, his faith was considered by God to be equivalent to righteousness. Righteousness. Listen to Paul's testimony. Romans 4:18 through 22 In hope against hope, Abraham believed so that he might become the father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Right? In other words, he believed this promise of God. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Paul tells the story of Abraham. He was old, his wife's womb was dead, but yet, with the promises of God, he believed and he trusted. In fact, His unbelief grew stronger. It grew strong in faith and ultimately that gave glory to God. But Paul continues on, not just with Abraham, but with the implications to us in Romans 4, verse 23. He says, Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake. This is for you and for me. For Paul and for the Romans. For our sake it was written. To whom it will be credited as those who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. In other words, Paul was pointing to the parallel between Abraham and us. There's a parallel between the faith of Abraham and our faith in Jesus Christ. What God did with Abraham, He will also do for us. God considered Abraham's faith to be righteousness and likewise, God will consider your faith and my faith in Christ Jesus as righteousness. In this way, Abraham becomes the father of faith. Certainly, there were many others who believed. Abel believed God and offered an acceptable sacrifice to God. Enoch believed God and God took him up without dying. Chapter 5, you see all these people dying, all these people dying, all these people dying. But Enoch believed God and God just took him up. Noah believed God and built an ark. Saved his family. But none of these men received the pronouncement that Abraham does. The pronouncement of the righteousness of faith. Abraham was declared righteous because of his faith. And in that way, Abraham's faith is a model for us who are also declared righteous because of our faith in Christ. So, if you believe in Christ this morning, you are just like Abraham in terms of God looks down upon your faith and credits it as righteousness. It's the message of the Gospel. It's the message in which we hope. And that's the, the great point of what Paul was getting at in Romans chapter 4. Now, one thing's interesting, as you read on in Genesis, you realize that Abraham was justified by God before he was circumcised. And this is important. That's why it's good for us to go through the Bible chronologically. He was justified in chapter 15, circumcised in chapter 17. And the implications of that are huge for us. Also, you'll find out that Abraham was justified by God without keeping the law. Because Abraham came, and it was 430 years later that the law came has huge implications for us, right? It means that we're saved from our sin apart from law keeping. It means that we are saved from our sin apart from circumcision. It means we're saved from our sin apart from any religious works that we might do. Because keeping the law didn't justify Abraham in God's sight. Circumcision didn't justify Abraham in God's sight. It was Abraham's faith that God reckoned to him as righteousness. It's the same for us today. We're justified by faith in God's promise. Now, the promise to us isn't that God will make a nation come from our loins, but we have been promised something else. We've been promised that our faith in Christ will be given to us this righteousness. It's our faith in Jesus, right? It's not by the works of the law that any flesh will be justified in God's sight, but a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans 3.28 And this is the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which has been the cornerstone of the Protestant church since its inception. It's been the cornerstone of the church since its inception. Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 3 speaks it clearly. It's those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. It's those who are of faith to receive the promises. Well, at this point, there are many other things about the life of Abraham I'd love to speak with you about. I mean, I'd mean, love to, to, to give you more of this implication how the promise was given before the law. I'd love to tell you about how Abraham is the father of everyone who believes, circumcised and uncircumcised. I'd like to expand upon the issues of how the righteous acts of Abraham fit into his justification. Because he did have righteous acts. Genesis 21. I'd like, to speak, of, I'd like to speak to you about the, the promise to Abraham's seed. Every time it says descendants... I'll give you descendants, actually it's seed. And I think it ties in Genesis 3.15 coming through there. And I'd love to talk to you about all those things, but time six us today because Abraham is so big. In fact, even talking to my wife about preparing this message today, the problem with Abraham is there's so much biblical data. You know, Abraham's name I think is mentioned 73 times in the New Testament, more than anybody any other Old Testament character. And Abraham becomes the focus of everybody's faith. All the Jews all flying back to him. So the amount of data is immense. And perhaps we can address some of these issues in flocks. And we will. And that's the intent of flocks, to supplement here Sunday morning. We have one at our house tonight. You're welcome to come. I want to hear more about Abraham. Well, we've seen the land. We've seen the nation. And now the third point, the blessing. Turn back to Genesis chapter 12. Halfway through verse 2. We read this, I will bless you. Just as, a, as an expression of promise of blessing to Abraham. And I and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you Abraham all the families of the earth will be blessed. Four times in these two verses, the word blessed or blessing is used. And it's really the key to this passage. God tells Abraham that he will be blessed. He tells him his name would be great, he'll be a blessing. And the blessing to Abraham goes so far as this, is that the one who blesses Abraham will be blessed, but the one who curses Abraham will be cursed. Right? simply means that right. if someone speaks against or does something bad to Abraham... They're going to have that retribution come right back on them. They're going to be cursed. But if they speak well of and, and help and prosper Abraham, it'll be well and will prosper them. And I think that principle of Abraham even, even carries on through the Jewish lineage of people. We could tell, if time allowed us, of story after story after story of, of how people came to, to curse the Jews and the curse came back on them. Or those who blessed the Jews. They prospered. It's God's hand of blessing, right? Think about your children. If you have a child, if someone harms your child, what do you do? You step in and seek to harm the child. Well, you don't seek to harm, sorry. You seek to step in and make the situation right. God would harm the child. Okay? But if someone blesses your child, you want to encourage that and foster that, and you help that and you strengthen that as a parent. It's no different with God and Abraham. God viewed Abraham kind of as his son, as his family. If things go well, if people bless him, he's going to be on their side. If people curse him, he's going to be against them. That's the promise right here. Chapter 12, verse 3. Well, this abundant blessing of God simply meant that God will cause all of Abraham's activities to go well. And it did. In chapter 13, verse 2, we see that Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. God had blessed the house of Abraham financially, prosperity-wise. In fact, He had so much that he and his family was blessed. His nephew Lot had a bunch as well. Right, The blessing to Abraham spilled over, right? which is important because we will see the blessing of Abraham spill over. Initially, it spilled over just to Lot. Lot had all these herds and flocks. And in chapter 13, the story is, Abraham comes to Lot and he says, you know what? The the land is too small for us. You lift up your eyes and you choose the land. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. gives Lot a choice. And he chooses the the valley of the Jordan, Sodom and Gomorrah. He went that way. And Abraham went to the land of Canaan. What did God do? He prospered Abraham. Abraham didn't have to make the right choice of a land in order to be prospered. God would see to it that Lot would choose the poorer portion, that God would bless the portion of him, because Lot got in trouble. But Abraham was so blessed of God that Abraham had the resources to to take hundreds of men who were his servants, Genesis 14, 14, and go and rescue Lot from the hands of the kings who had captured him. God blessed Abraham in his faith. God blessed Abraham in his disobedience. It's interesting, when when Abraham lied about Sarah's wife for the second time to Abimelech in chapter 20, God stepped into the situation and made sure that Sarah wasn't defiled. When Abimelech said, uh, I didn't know. I didn't know that they were husband and wife. God says, I know, but I kept you. I protected Sarah. He went in there. And you know what happened when Abraham and Sarah left the house of Abimelech? He was given a thousand pieces of silver. Hey, go your way. That is the blessing of God even upon the disobedience of Abraham. And God blessed Abraham in abundance. Near the end of his life, Genesis 24 verse 1 says, The Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. The testimony of Abraham. And we can see it in chapter 12. I'll bless you. You'll be a blessing. I'll make you great. But you know what? Here's the fascinating thing. The blessing of Abraham doesn't stop with Abraham. It wasn't just blessing upon him. It says in Genesis 12, verse 3, right at the end, it says, "...in you all the families of the earth will be blessed." In other words, even it goes far beyond just Abraham and his family, the blessing to Abraham is so much that it spills over beyond his family to all the families of the earth. Be blessed in Abraham. Paul uses these words here to speak about how this came to be. God said, Paul wrote in Galatians 3 verse 8, the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, "All nations will be blessed in you." It's the gospel preached to Abraham beforehand that it's in you, Abraham, that all the families of the earth will be blessed. We have here in Genesis chapter twelve, verse three, the preaching of the gospel, right? The good news that God has brought salvation to the Gentiles. Paul says in Galatians three fourteen that it's in Christ Jesus that the blessing of Abraham has come to the Gentiles. The blessing of Abraham to the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. So please realize this morning, as you experience the blessings of God by believing in Christ, you are blessed only because God blessed Abraham And His blessing then comes to you. Your blessing that you receive as a believer in Christ is an overflow of this blessing right here to Abraham in Genesis 12.3. From the very start of choosing the Jewish nation, God had the Gentiles in mind. And at the end of our Bibles in Revelation chapter 5, we see a great fulfillment of this blessing In Revelation 5, we see Jesus, the Lamb of God, standing in heaven before the throne of God. And He comes and takes the scroll of His Father. And the elders there in heaven fall down and worship Jesus. And listen to what they say to Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation." In other words, people are worshipping Jesus and giving great expression and honor and worth to Christ. Why? Because His sacrifice was efficacious. In other words, it purchased people from all the families of the earth. Every tribe and tongue and people and nation. When Jesus died upon the cross, He was purchasing the people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. Before even they were born, He purchased it for them. And that's why Jesus Christ is worshipped in eternity. Because His atonement was definite. It purchased these people. And you need to realize today, dear people of God, that we've received this this blessing in Christ by faith because of a promise that God made to Abraham 4,000 years ago. And the story of the Old Testament gives us 2,000 years of, of history of Abraham and working it out with the people of God, ultimately then when Messiah would come. And when Messiah would come, the blessing of God would then extend beyond the nation of Israel to all the nations of the earth, to every family. All the families of the earth will be blessed. It's an amazing blessing. It's a blessing to Abraham that's affected the whole world. It's a blessing that's come to us in Rockford today. But I want you to notice here about this blessing, maybe stepping back when you think about Abraham a little bit, is that of all the people that God could have blessed, God chose to bless Abraham. He could have chose Haran, Abraham's father, but He didn't. He chose Abraham. He could have chosen to bless Terah. I'm sorry, Haran was Abraham's brother. Terah was Abraham's father. But He didn't. God could have chosen to bless Nahor, Abraham's grandfather. But He didn't. Could have chosen to bless Serug, Abraham's great-grandfather. But He didn't. He could have chosen to bless many other people, but He didn't. He chose Abraham. My question to you is, why? Why did God choose Abraham? And the biblical answer I think that's best is that we have no reason ever given why God chose to bless this man with such great blessings. In vain do you find anything in Scripture that indicates Abraham's worthiness to receive this blessing. The only thing we know of Abraham before this blessing, this is very interesting, I found out this week, the only thing we know of Abraham before Genesis 12 is that he came from a family of idol worshippers. Joshua chapter 24, verse 2 says that. His family were were idol worshipers. And here was Abraham, kind of just chosen out of that. Here it is. I think that God selected Abraham by the mere pleasures of His grace. It's the mere pleasures of the grace of God to pick and choose one man to be the father of one nation upon whom God would bestow His special favor. And I think those who struggle with the doctrine of election need to think long and hard about God's dealing with Abraham. And then the nation of Israel. See, Because there's nothing in Abraham that caused God to choose him to be the one through whom worldwide blessing would come. In fact, we know from his character that he wasn't such always an upright guy. But from this point forward in history, God focused his attention, his affection upon one nation, the nation of Israel, which came from the loins of Abraham. And, And there was only one nation that received the special blessing of God. It was the United States of America. It wasn't Egypt or Persia or Spain or England or Russia. It was Israel that God has chosen to bless. It was those who came out of the physical line of Abraham, which eventually became known as Israel. Those who were born into Abraham's family were the focus of God's blessing for 2,000 years. And you need to realize that those who are outside of the family of Israel were not receiving this blessing for 2,000 years. Most to resist the doctrine of election do so from logical grounds. They think that God needs to be an equal opportunity salvation, opportunity provider. Or they think God is to be unjust. But that's not the case of the Old Testament. During that time, God was very selective in His love. His love and His blessings extended to Israel for 2,000 years. And it did. They increased, right? From, a, from Abraham... And a 90-year-old woman, right, to Isaac and to Jacob and to Joseph, by the time of four generations later, they had 70. But 430 years later, they had well over a million people. And God continued to bless them and prosper them. But that, even when they were slaves in Egypt, they cried out to the Lord and God remembered them and rescued them out of slavery, paying special attention to them. But you know what? This wasn't the case for other nations. Many nations never heard of the true God and perished in their sins. And the angel of the Lord came against the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. He was against them. Because Israel was where his love was, and Israel was his nation, and he said, You conquer those people, destroy them utterly. And when they didn't destroy them utterly, God got angry. It's because God's love is a selecting love. Husbands, think about your love for your wife. What is it that makes your love special for your wife? It said it's exclusive. Your love for your wife would be defamed if you say, I love my wife. And I love the other women in this church too. I love them all the same. Would that be special? Would that indicate love? No. But God demonstrates his love and that it's a selective love. And you know, it's not because Israel is righteous. But it's because God chose Israel, and made a promise to love Israel. You can read about that. Deuteronomy chapter seven speaks about how I just chose you to love you. That's what God did. In The story of the Old Testament is the story of how God chose a people for Himself, and decided He would guard and protect these people. And you know what? In the Gospel of Christ—it's no different, <laughs> right? So we believe in Christ. God chose Abraham. We reconcile to God, and without the sovereign election of Abraham, there's no nation of God, there's no Messiah, there's no salvation. We're still dead in our sins. But in Abraham, right, all the families of the earth are blessed, and God works the same way. Different today. It's not that He chooses a nation, but He chooses people from before the foundation of the world to come to faith in Him. And when Jesus came to the earth, He came to establish this new covenant. Right? He came to open our eyes. He came to show us of the glories of Christ and he's brought salvation beyond the Jews to the Gentiles who believe. And so I ask you this morning, what's your perspective of your faith and your trust in God? Do you think about Abraham and you realize that the promise to Abraham comes to you through Christ? And do you realize there's no reason why you would be particularly blessed of God? And that God chose you, was gracious to you. But with that heart, I just encourage us now as we think about transitioning to the Lord's Supper, is is just to be thrilled by by this truth of the promises of God. See, when God makes a promise, it is sure to come to pass. God promised blessing to all the families of the earth. And He was true to that promise. And today, God has promised that all who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will be forgiven of their sin. Do you have Abraham-like faith? Not perfect faith. Right, but a faith that says, God, I, I believe Your promise. I believe the promise You've made. And if so, I tell you by the authority of Scripture that if you have Abraham-like faith, God looks down upon you and considers you as righteous. And that is the crux of the Gospel. Right? It's through the work of Christ that we're considered holy in God's sight. And that's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. Right? We, for, we celebrate forgiveness of sins through the new covenant. You remember when Jesus took the, the bread and the cup? He said, this is the new covenant in my blood, right? It's not the old covenant, right? It's not the Mosaic covenant, but it's, it's the covenant of promise that God promised to bless His people, those who would believe and trust on Him. And this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we take the bread and drink of the cup, really it's an affirmation of our hearts that Christ Jesus, God, I believe and trust in Christ and that the Abrahamic promise of blessing has come through the Messiah to me and that I embrace it and I take it and I trust. And so this ought to be a time of great joy because it stirs our heart simply to say that, God, I am blessed because of Your grace by faith in You. Let's bow our heads. Lord, I think as we come to celebrate here the Lord's Supper, as we do at Rock Valley Bible Church every month or so, stir in our hearts afresh, give us fresh desires for for you, God. Uh, r- remind us and assure us again, God, of, of the tremendous blessings that we have in Christ, totally undeserved, totally undeserved. We were children of wrath when born, and yet you, by your grace. Your mercy and kindness us to born us again right? to create in our hearts desires and affections for you, which is the promise of the new covenant, I will put in their hearts my law, no longer will they have to go about talking to each other, know the Lord because they shall all know the Lord, God, because you've put your truth in our hearts, so we look to you and so we worship you, and so we do adore you. I pray now, Lord, as we often do and we are called to do is to examine our lives and our hearts. God, really to see whether we believe this or not. I pray, Lord, that You might not find us as believing in vain like those in Corinth were. Had an empty faith. It wasn't substantial. It wasn't in Christ. So I pray You'd find us worthy. And so even now, even with your heads bowed, I encourage you to confess your sin to the Lord. Pledge to do what you can to to make it right. Plead the promise of Christ. If that's your heart, take of the Lord's Supper. If there's some hardness of your heart, some unlove that you have towards others that remains in your heart, don't take the Lord's Supper because in doing so, you will reap judgment upon yourself. But take it in joy and full confidence, knowing and trusting that in Christ, forgiveness is to be found. And so, God, bless our time. Stir our hearts with joy as we began our service this morning. I take pleasure in worshiping You. May this be pleasure and joy. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.